You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, do you have your Bibles with you today? I hope you bring them. How about you online? Do you have your Bibles beside you today? Hope you will because we're going to be going through a number of scriptures today. Uh, This is your Bible. And my hope is that through this series, I've been able to help you use it and get more out of it. Some of you have told me that you've really liked the series. Uh, Some of you are a little concerned that I picked on your precious King James Bible. And a few of you have told me that you literally didn't like last Sunday's message, especially suggesting that there were ways to read certain parts of the Bible that you usually take literally. If you miss all that controversy, I encourage you to go to uh, YouTube and catch it at a later date. It'll, yeah, anyway. Just to reassure you, though, uh, I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe this to be the inspired Word of God. Do I hear an amen? amen? This book, this Bible, is not God. That would be idolatry. But it is the Word of God. And by its breath, by the breath of the Spirit of God, it is supernaturally infused with the ability to reveal to our hearts and our minds God's will and who God is and what He's like. And actually, through these pages, we can get to know Him more personally. Though it was not written to us, it most definitely was written for us. So this is our Bible, all of it. Now, before you open your Bible, we've been saying each week that there's something that you need to do. Before opening your Bible, you must open your own heart and mind to the eternal, all-knowing, supernatural God who engineered it. That's very important. So to do that, let's pray quickly. Father, before we get into this word any further, we want to give you our hearts. We want to give you our minds. We want them to be open. Some of that we can do ourselves by just giving affirmation to your word and permission to your spirit to speak to us. But Lord, just as you opened the scriptures and the minds of the disciples on a particular road after the resurrection, we ask you to open our minds as well. And to this we pray, amen. Now, today's message is entitled, The Bible is Dialogue, Not Monologue. You know the difference, right? A dialogue is a conversation between two or more persons. A monologue is written or verbal. It is a discourse by a single presenter. And one of the reasons that people don't seem to get the Bible or get much out of it is because they approach the Bible like it is monologue. To them, it is a book about God's thoughts, but after a while, they tire of the download. Even at the beginning of our Christian experience with our Bibles, we, we get excited because we've now got this, this new book, and in it, there are all kinds of, it's our new instruction manual for Christian living. And so, we're full of questions, of course. And in those early days and years of our faith, we're glad to have access to such new instruction. But after a while, even though I was told that the Word of God speaks to us, I imagine maybe even your experience is the same as mine, because many is. My Bible only ever seemed to be a one-sided monologue. I never really heard this promised voice of God in my Bible as I read it. Lots of great stories and instructions, but the Bible as a dialogue, as a conversation, 
seemed to escape me for a very long time. The Bible contains a lot of examples by the writers of what the Bible can deliver on. I just want to, I just went to my concordance. Uh, Remember, the concordance is that tool that's at the back of your Bible. If you have one at the back of your Bible, another reason to get a good modern English study Bible is to have a good concordance available to you. A concordance is an alphabetically arranged word list that helps you search out just about any word in the Bible, and it references chapter and verse where to find it in the Bible. If you have a good Bible app, you'll be able to do a similar thing. And I encourage you to find one and use it well because it will help you to find all kinds of different words and phrases in your Bible that you aren't familiar with yourself. So if you look up the word Bible in a concordance, what do you think you'll find? Well, you actually won't find it there in your Bible. The word Bible is not in your Bible. Remember, the writers and the players that that we read about in the Bible only had the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. However, the past, uh, past the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, the early church already considered some of Paul's letters as scripture. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. The apostle says, his, that is Paul's, letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So, How much of the rest of the New Testament was considered Scripture in the New Testament era? We don't know. So in the Bible, there is a word called Scripture. And that is the word that is prominently used in the New Testament especially, and that's all we're going to have time to kind of walk through for this morning. But it is the word that is used primarily for the inspired text of the Bible. Now, as you read through, say, Psalm 119, for instance, you will find the psalmist referring to the scriptures by other terms, such as the law of God, or God's decrees, or commands, God's statutes, his precepts. And a few times, the Old Testament scripture, the Old Testament, the scriptures will be referred to as the word of God. So looking up just the word scripture in a concordance, just for the New Testament, This is what we find. I'm going to walk you through some of these really quickly, and then I'll just sort of briefly mention something about them. Luke chapter 24, verse 26 to 27. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the scriptures can explain things about Jesus. And as a result, those disciples that were on this road, later in verse 32, they said that their hearts burned within them as Jesus opened the scriptures to them. Do you ever have that experience with the Bible? Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 4. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, that is the Jews there, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So from the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, remember, that's all they had at this point, but all the scriptures, you can use them to explain and to prove that Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. It was predicted, it was prophesied long before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. Acts 17, verses 11 to 12. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, not more than Lawson, though. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
So examining the scriptures, you can validate doctrine and theology. Acts chapter 18, verse 27. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, from the scriptures, you can prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a, dependent, a descendant of David. So in other words, you can trace the promised Davidic Messiah through, of Jesus through the Old Testament prophets in the Scriptures. Romans 15, 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So the Scriptures, as they teach us, they provide endurance, they provide encouragement, and they provide hope. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17. Timothy, since infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures are God-breathed, and they're able to make you wise for salvation, and they're able to teach you and rebuke you and correct you and train you in righteousness and to equip you thoroughly. What great, great Scriptures we have. 2 Peter 3, last one, verses 15 to 16. Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter says that the scriptures, though sometimes hard to understand, and I don't know if, yeah, I've experienced that. Though hard to understand, if you remain humble and teachable, you will gain wisdom. So these scriptures are invaluable to our daily Christian walk, are they not? And that's just the word scripture that we find these ideas about the scriptures. Now, I know that's a lot of scripture, but I thought it was important for you to hear what scripture has to say about scripture. But again, we primarily read teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and equipping more of a one-way monologue than as dialogue, don't we? We read all those scriptures of God telling us, not really talking with us. So how do we move from the scriptures as mere monologue to actually becoming dialogue or conversation with God? Well, to do that, we're going to anchor down in, in uh, John chapter 5 today. John chapter 5. So a little past the middle of your Bible, you can find the index at the front of your Bible to help you find it. John, the New Testament starts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 5, verse 36 to 40. Let me read it for us. You'll see some highlighting here. Uh, that's just kind of in the highlighting that I did and copied and pasted as I was studying. John chapter 5, 36 to 40. You have sent for John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, Jesus said, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. 
I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you, wrongly, think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. To testify and testimony are once again monologue, are they not? One person telling. That's that's hardly a dialogue. But watch as we examine these four testimonies about Jesus here in this passage. Let me set up the scene for us. This is John's gospel, uh, not John the baptizer, uh, though he will come up later in our discussion here. But John chapter 19, verse 35, tells us that the author of this gospel was a witness of Christ's crucifixion. John chapter 21 identifies him as the disciple of Jesus. According to my study Bible in the book introduction, again, if you have a good English study Bible, you'll find at the beginning a uh, an sort of a, an introduction to the book as to author and date and setting and all that kind of stuff. And, and like you'll see here on the screen, we learn that church tradition identifies the author as the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, also called John the Evangelist, and the author of 1 John, and most likely the book of Revelation. Scholars and commentators debate about the date of the composition of this gospel. I happen to think that John's gospel and the rest of the New Testament had to be written before 70 AD, when the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened. Otherwise, every single one of the New Testament books would have addressed this dreadful event in the life of of Israel. So there's no way any of them would have omitted that detail from this, and so that's how I kind of get to the date being at least before 70 AD. Now, we're near the beginning of John's Gospel today, chapter 5, but a lot has already happened. Jesus has started his ministry by choosing some disciples. He's turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He's cleared the temple and promised to raise the temple of his body in three days, confusing the Jews about what he meant. And then he's also talked with with Nicodemus about being born again. He's talked with a Samaritan woman at the well about living water and the new nature of true worship. And now he's back in Jerusalem, and it's a Sabbath day, the scripture says, for one of the Jewish festivals. It's either Passover or Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks. And if you know the history of Israel's experience in the wilderness, in the days of Moses, you know that the Sabbath was ordained by God. It was ordained as a weekly holy day by God in the Ten Commandments, set aside as holy and with a forbiddenness to work on it. Restaurants and stores in Israel, if you go there today on Saturday are still observing the Sabbath. And some of the things that they do, I think I've mentioned this before, they, if the restaurant is open, all the food will be out, and all you have to do is take. They've already done all the work the day before. If you're taking the elevator, the elevator's on a schedule. It comes down and up the elevator shaft all day long, and it starts off at the bottom. You don't have to press a button to get on, because that would be work. And then you get on, and it goes up to the first floor, stops, the door's open, 
and people get out. You don't have to press another button. The elevator will go up all the way up to whatever floor you're on and back down again, repeating that process endlessly every Saturday. In this scenario, Jesus is walking around the pool of Bethsaida near the Sheep Gate, just outside the wall around Jerusalem. Here's, it's located on this map here. You'll see the temple being uh, surrounded by the wall, the Sheep Gate's there, the pools of Bethsaida are there. And it's, it's a large two-pool system. And if you've ever been there, it's extremely deep. It's not filled with water to this day, but it was pretty deep then. Every day in Jesus' day, a large number of disabled people would lie around it, waiting for the right moment for the pool to stir. There was a natural spring underneath, they've discovered. But they believed that it was an angel that would stir the waters every once in a while. And if they could be the first ones in the water, they would get a divine healing by God. One man was there. He had been an invalid for 38 years, it says in the text. And Jesus takes special notice of him. And he asks him a peculiar question. He says, do you want to get well? And then he says to the man, pick up your mat and walk. And he's healed. And then Jesus, he slips out through the crowd and not to be seen again. Long story short, the Jewish leaders of the area hear of this man's healing. But they pay special notice of the fact that the man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That was work for a Jew. According to their reading of the scriptures, this was forbidden. At first, this guy didn't know who had healed him, but later he meets Jesus again, and then he goes and tells the Jewish leaders that he had learned the identity of this man who healed him. When they confronted Jesus, in his defense, Jesus says to them in verse 17, My father is always at work, you guys, to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18, For this reason they, the Jewish leaders, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing on it, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So then, the Gospel of John chronicles the dialogue between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. Let's look at the first testimony about Jesus here. Number one is this. The prophet John testifies that Jesus is the truth. The prophet John testifies that Jesus is the truth. Verse 33, you have sent for John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John was a prophet the forerunner of the promised Jewish Messiah. And along with the prophets of old, like Isaiah, which is quoted here, John was a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John chapter 1, if you go back a couple of chapters, we see it cross-referenced here in verse 15 to 20. John testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have received grace and place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the, o- but the one and only Son, who is himself God, 
is, and is in closest relationship with him, with the Father, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So John, the baptizing prophet, was already testifying to these Jewish leaders that Jesus was the Son of God and in fact God. And as such, only Jesus can make the Father known to humanity. Well, that just reinforced their want to kill Jesus. Again, not only for breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling himself God and he was calling God his Father. That's the testimony of the prophet John. Now, getting back to John chapter 5, verse 36, here's the second testimony we see. The works of Jesus testify that the Father sent the Son. The works of Jesus testify that the Father sent Jesus. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John, a prophet. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I, uh, that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Healings, casting out demons, multiplying bread and fish, raising the dead, all these are works that no mere mortal, mere mortal man could do. But Jesus did. Just a couple chapters earlier, Jesus is having this secret meeting with a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish high ruling council named Nicodemus. You might be familiar with the story. He came to Jesus at night and he said, chapter 3, verse 1 and 3, Rabbi, we know, he's meaning the rest of the ruling council, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So clearly, even the Jewish leaders knew that Jesus obviously had some kind of special approval from God. His miraculous works proved his anointing from God. The works proved, testified that Jesus was God's son. And then there's the third testimony. Number three, the Father testifies that he sent Jesus. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. These Jewish leaders could see prophetic testimony of John the baptizer backing up Jesus' claim about who he was. They could see by the works that Jesus did that, God, that he had the anointing of God on him, that God was with him. And those works then also prove that the Father himself testifies, affirming Jesus' claim. But they still couldn't accept him as the Lord's Messiah. Why? Because he healed on a Sabbath. He healed on a Sabbath. In their minds, Jesus contravened or he violated the law of God, which in their minds invalidated his claims. Because Messiah would never do that. He goes against the scriptures, they say. Therefore, he must not be who he claims to be. That was their defense or their accusation, which meant they didn't need to listen to him. That's why earlier in the Gospels, in John chapter 1, verse 10, the writer says, 
he, Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, who can make the world but God? The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who do receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in close relationship with the Father, he has made him known. God the Father sent God the Son to this world, a visible, tangible testimony of the invisible, intangible God to reveal to humanity what the Father is like and what the Father wants. He wants to save humanity from their sins and in so doing, create a new family here on earth, a born-again, supernatural family who will do His will by the Spirit of God in this world. But there's a real reason why the Jewish leaders couldn't receive him. Verse 38. Jesus said, You have never heard his voice. Or, yeah, you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. The real reason the Jewish leaders couldn't receive him was according to Jesus because the word of God didn't really dwell in them. They knew it, backwards and forwards. But he was saying to them, I've heard the voice of the Father. I've seen his form. You haven't, and yet you're obsessing over my healing on the Sabbath. You think I broke the law of Moses, Jesus says, and so you refuse to believe that I am the promised Messiah? I am the one who is greater than Moses. And even after everything that's been testified in my favor, you refuse to believe me. And then it gets even more heated with the fourth testimony. Number four, the scriptures testify that Jesus alone gives eternal life. The scriptures testify that Jesus alone gives eternal life. Verse 39, he says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you wrongly think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Folks, these Jewish leaders knew their Bibles better than us, guaranteed. They knew that God had commanded their ancestors under Moses, go all the way back if you cross-reference to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. Even in Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders were diligent students of the Bible. But they, they misapplied God's commands. Believing it was com- the commanded in Scripture to not do anything to violate Sabbath. They believed that the commands of Scripture would save them. But Jesus says, no. Scriptures testify about me. You refuse to come to me to have life. 
Eternal life, my friends, is found in Jesus Christ alone. The Scriptures, your Bible, directs you to Him and Him alone to receive it. So we've just studied the Scriptures, four testimonies about Jesus. Time and again, I find that, the page, that page after page of these Scriptures draw me into its world. And when I allow myself to enter that world, I kind of leave my world for a time and I engage with God on His terms, in His book. These are His Scriptures. And when I approach the Scriptures in that way, so often I get caught up in the drama of the text. And sometimes, many times, they catch me off guard. They constantly surprise me at how relevant these ancient writings are to me. And that challenges me. Sometimes even torments me. But it teaches me. And if I let it, the scriptures guide me. And that's why when I open my Bible, I do so desiring and expecting God to speak to me. Here's the thing. Most people's regular experience with the scriptures is to simply read them. The reading of the Bible is good. It's very good. I recommend you do it every day. But appreciate that if your habit is just to read the Bible, even if you use a reading plan, yes, you'll get the experience of being drawn into its world, but not much differently than if you were to read, say, The, the Lord of the Rings or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Ben-Hur. I'm serious, don't over-spiritualize the mere reading of the Bible. You can't get spiritual by osmosis. Reading the Bible is really, really good in that it will give you a general story flow of the Scriptures. Keep in mind that the books of the Bible are not in chronological order, though. But just think about what we have done today. What we had to do today to get to the point of hearing these testimonies about Jesus. We had to study the scripture passage. And we've been doing so for the last 30 minutes. I did a whole day's worth of study preparation just to get the depth to you in this capacity. The truth is, reading your Bible is great, but it can't, you can't get this kind of experience by simply reading it. You need to also study your Bibles. Think about what we've done today. I've helped pull out a lot of the immediate and some of the cultural and historical context of the passage for us. Some of that I had in my head because of past Bible studies that I've been in in this passage. But I'm not that smart. I had to consult maps and concordances in the front of my Bible, my, each, uh, the Gospel of John, and I had to consult some study notes and some commentary to dig deeper into the background in order to help you think like a Second Temple New Testament Jew. And when we cross-reference back and forth through the Old and the New Testaments to discover where some of the ideas came from that Jesus talked about with these Jewish leaders... We defined some terms. We investigated the characters. We didn't have time to do any real word studies. That would take a little bit more time. But in other words, 
If your practical experience with Scripture is just to simply read your Bible, you're missing out on a lot of what the Bible can do and what you can get out of it. If the only Bible reading you do is a small tidbit at the beginning of a devotional, like, say, the Daily Bread devotional, again, you're missing out on what your Bible can do for you. You'll never get this kind of experience with the Scriptures without some diligent study. If you want that experience, you're going to have to give more time, and you're going to have to push yourself to dig deeper. Use some resources to help you get a broader understanding of the text. That's why we have group Bible studies here at Lawson, because they help us together learn how to dig deeper. We sharpen each other, we grow together, and we learn more than just a casual reading of the text. And as we read and study our Bibles, that's when, to our surprise, we find ourselves saying, oh, this has to do with me. And because of that infusion of the Holy Spirit in us, that the, that the Scriptures promise, God then speaks to us, and He draws us deeper into the Word. So it's one thing to be reading about God speaking to Moses on a flashing, quaking Mount Sinai, or reading about Jesus as He preaches His cryptic uh, Sermon on the Mount on the, uh, the lakeside Galilean hillside near Capernaum. But it's quite another thing altogether to sit with a passage for a length of time to study it, and then to ruminate on it, and then through it to hear God speak to you from those ancient texts. When and if I ever hear from people that they never hear God speak to them in the Bible, I, help, I try to help them see that they're just not spending enough time with the text. And there's a question that you should always ask yourself after engaging in, a, in the Bible study. What did I hear God saying to me today? What did I hear God say today? Think about it. Until you can answer that, you really haven't spent enough time in the text. So what did we hear Jesus say today? Well, first of all, we learned a lot from these Jewish leaders what not to do with Scripture, right? After being confronted by the testimonies about Jesus, these words cause us to self-analyze, don't they? And we dare not let ourselves, like the teachers of the law did, to allow ourselves to continue in disbelief. We can't go back once we've read it. So, from what we've just studied, what did we hear God saying? Did we not hear that Jesus and John the baptizer testify that the prophets of the Old Testament tell us that, God, that Jesus is God's Savior? Did you hear Jesus say that the works he, he performed have proven that he is God's promised Messiah? Did you hear Jesus say that the Father whom he has seen face to face and heard his voice and we have not backs up his claims? The claims of him who has seen the Father and who is the one and only Son of God who came from the Father to reveal his will and plan to save and to create a new born again spiritual family that all of that can be ours if we look to Jesus. Hearing all that what do you do with all that? Oh, see, now that's the million-dollar question of Bible engagement. See, here's the thing. Without putting the fun work into diligent Bible study, a simple reading will not get you to where you need to go to today. 
But further, hearing God speak to you in the text of the Bible often happens beyond Bible study. And that way, Bible study itself almost isn't enough. Following Bible study, it's important that you learn to meditate on what you've just learned. Read the Bible, study it, meditate on it. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what we've just heard or just read in John chapter 5 is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness and equipping the servant of God, which is us. But Timothy also tells us that these holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's because, as Timothy claims, these scriptures, this Bible of yours, is God-breathed. God-breathed. As the late great apologist Dr. Walter Martin once said, the Word of God is God in His Word speaking to us by His Spirit. And that's why, following Bible study, we need to move from looking at the words of the text to waiting on God. We need to give God time to speak through the details of the text. And if we rush this important time of meditation, we will probably miss hearing God's voice. This is kind of how Revelation takes place. You'll see it up here, a little bit of a flow. There's Bible reading, which needs to move into Bible study which needs to move into Bible listening, which then needs to move into Bible obeying. Bible listening is the meditation. It is mulling. It is ruminating. It is listening to the words for God's voice. Today, did you not hear Jesus say to you and to all of us that eternal life is found in Him alone? Well, now that we've heard Him in Bible study, We need to actually spend some time listening to him. Because Bible listening is different than just hearing what the Bible says, isn't it? You can hear somebody talking to you, but it doesn't mean that you're actually listening, right? Christmas is just about upon us. And some people have as part of their tradition to drink mulled apple cider. Do you know what mulled apple cider is? It's not bad. You add to some apple cider some cinnamon sticks some cloves, some allspice, some berries, some star anise, and, of course, some sliced oranges. Maybe Grandma has a special recipe for it that's passed on. You add that to a large pot. Then you heat that pot over a medium heat. You don't want to boil it. You don't want to get it too hot. You want to give it time to just simmer. Simmer so that all of that can come together into one delicious taste. The more time, the better, in fact. That's where we get the old phrase to mull something over in our heads, in our hearts. That's what Bible meditation or listening is. It's mulling over and over and over again what you've just heard or read and studied until the scriptures are mulled together into one beautiful taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. And this is where the Jewish leaders failed to get to the point of scripture. When you listen to the testimony of your Bible, What you get is you get to enjoy Jesus. That's the point. And as John's gospel says in chapter 1, in him is life, and that life is the light and the salvation of all mankind. I hope that through this series, you have been able to know Jesus better as you have pursued him in this book of yours, as you've learned about your Bible and how better to use it. And hopefully today, 
you've also learned that you need to take more time with it. And when you do, God will pull it all together and you'll get a great taste of Jesus to take you into your week and into your life. There's many benefits to this word, but the best benefit is that it leads you to Jesus and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, we are so grateful for this word. It says it's God-breathed. What that means exactly, we don't know. We can't fully articulate it. Theologians have tried for the last couple millennia to do that. But it will always fall short. It'll fall short because of the experience that we can have through this word. And that it leads us to Jesus, your son, whom you sent into this world with signs and wonders and proof that he is our Messiah and Savior. Lord, today we come to Jesus through your word and we trust him to be for us all that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, you are good. And we've learned that today in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.